The very first thing you're going to need for this lesson is your timeline. So if you have your timeline handy, uh, go ahead and pull it out because we, we want to take a look at a couple of things on there. One of the things that we want to look at is at the, at the blue part, which is the uh, Roman Empire. You can see the Roman Empire rising uh, gradually, uh, gradually taking over, taking over the world. And around 63 BC is, is where, uh, Pompey enters Jerusalem at 30 BC. Caesar Augustus is the first Roman emperor. And uh, shortly thereafter, Jesus is born. So one of the things that you can see is that the beginning of this, this fourth major world empire, which I'm going to call the imperialist empire, is bracketed on the beginning by the first coming of Christ. We know from our studies last week that it ends, the, the period of this fourth empire ends with the second coming of Christ, with the, the great tribulation, uh, the coming of the Antichrist, and the, and the second coming of, of Christ. The terminology that we want to use in this class, we're going to draw from traditional um, Christian terminology, that, that 11th king that we were talking about, rising up out of the fourth beast, is called his what we call that king is the antichrist that's just so that we can distinguish him from all the other kings that are talked about in prophecy and so that we can begin to collect the attributes and the characteristics of his reign uh, under a heading that we all know what we're talking about so i forgot to tell you that last week but but we're going to start in this lesson calling that 11th horn that rises up that a horn is always a king or a kingdom that's we're going to call him the antichrist and and we're going to start collecting information on him one of the things that i want you to notice on this timeline though is that whole period of the fourth beast the one that you know tramples and devours that begins with the rise and the fall of the of the roman empire that whole period is bracketed on either end by the coming of christ it starts out with the first coming. It ends with the second coming. The Antichrist occurs near the end of that period. He is the last king before Jesus comes a second time. But there's very little in prophecy, in the prophecy of Daniel or anywhere else in prophecy for that matter, uh, in the Old Testament, about that intervening period, the period between the brackets. The only thing we know so far is that this imperialist, this empire, this fourth kingdom is going to just crush and trample and devour. It's going to be horrible. And we know we, we get a lot of information about the Antichrist and what happens when he comes right at the very end before Jesus comes. But for all those thousands of years in between, there's very, very little information in prophecy. And this period of time it's like a story within a story because that period of time that's bracketed is the only time that the church exists. The church did not come into existence until Jesus came. And the church will cease existing when, you know, Jesus comes and there is no need a second time. There's no need for the church after he comes a second time. So between these brackets, you have the time of the Christian uh, not of the Jew. It's a period of grace and salvation through Jesus. And Jesus talks about this in Luke chapter 4, verse 16 through 21. This is a story when he had come to Nazareth, to his hometown, and he was going to church, and they asked him to do the reading for the day. So he opened up the book to the reading. And these readings are, are scheduled readings, but he opened up the book, and he read out of Isaiah. And what he said was, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. 
And there he stopped and he closed the book. And he sat down and in, and everybody's looking at him because he, he actually he stopped in the middle of a sentence. They're looking at him and he said, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Well, if you go back, we need to go back and look at the original passage in Isaiah because it tells us a lot where he stopped. The passage is in Isaiah chapter 61, verses 1 and 2. And so if you pick it up, it's exactly as he read it, you know, to proclaim liberty to captives, freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God. Jesus stopped short of that last phrase about the day of vengeance. What he was saying was that with the first coming, his purpose was to free prisoners, to bring good news, and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord, the period of grace and salvation. The second half of that sentence that says, and the day of vengeance of our God, refers to the time of tribulation at the end of this period, when just before Jesus comes the second time. That day of vengeance is a phrase, sometimes it's called the great indignation, the the uh, terrible day of the Lord, the day of wrath. There's just a whole lot of phrases for that same period of time in the Bible. We're going to assign that phrase a constant name so that we, we all know what period we're talking about. And again, we're going to pull from common Christian nomenclature and we're going to call it the Great Tribulation. That's what we're talking about here. The, the day of vengeance of our God. So Jesus himself is the authority that shows us that Old Testament prophecy can and does completely omit, skip over, make, make very short shrift of the thousands of years in between his first and his second coming. But, but there, it is a meaningful period. And Jesus said that period, when he comes, during that period, is the favorable year of the Lord. So keep that in mind as we go through Daniel chapter 8. We're going to start uh, with verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Belshazzar the king, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, subsequent to the one which appeared to me previously. I looked in the vision, and while I was looking, I was in the citadel of Susa, which is in the province of Elam, and I looked in the vision, and I myself was beside the Ulai Canal. Well, first off, you want to notice that this was in the third year of Belshazzar. So this is about two years after he had the vision that we just finished up with in chapter 7. And what you sense in his description of where he was is his utter astonishment to find himself there. Because at, at this time, Susa was a little known town about 230 miles east of Babylon. And Daniel was stationed in Babylon. As you know, he was in the court. Susa is in what's now southwest Iran. And it did ultimately become the winter capital of the Persians in the Persian Empire and is actually where Esther was queen when, when she became queen. But that had not happened yet. We're, Daniel is seeing this vision before the Persians have come to power, before they have conquered Babylon. The the town of Susa became a very great capital for the Persians, and it was in Susa that the Hammurabi Code was discovered in 1901. And apparently Daniel himself lived there late in his life. It's traditionally where his tomb is, and his tomb is, even today, venerated by Shiite Muslims. There's, a, in fact, a story from the 10th century where a traveler describes the fact that that the inhabitants of the city were fighting over Daniel's coffin. Susa is a town that is divided up by a river, just like Babylon is. And the inhabitants on one side of the river were fighting with the inhabitants on the other side of the river as to who was going to get Daniel's coffin. And the ruler of the city ended up, supposedly, according to this story, enclosing Daniel's coffin in glass and suspending it from the bridge that 
bridged the river between the two halves of the city. Anyway, the Ulai Canal was actually an artificial canal that was that ran just north of the city and connected two of their major two major rivers up there. So he's finding himself in this very strange place in this in this vision. He's sitting on the banks of the canal and he says, then in verse three, then I lifted up my eyes and looked and behold, a ram which had two horns was standing in front of the canal. Now, the two horns were long, but one was longer than the other and the longer one came up last. Now, if you just think right there and think about one horn longer than the other, and think about the visions that Daniel has already had. You should call to mind that bear. Remember that bear was standing with one side higher than the other. He had one side raised up. If we think back to the bear in chapter 7, that bear was the Medo-Persian Empire. Where the Medes came up and then the Persians overpowered them. Or, you know, one control of the of the empire. So that... That vision or this vision of the ram seems to fit the Medo-Persian Empire. Then he says in, in verse 4, I saw the ram budding westward, northward, and southward, and no other beast could stand before him, nor was there anyone to rescue from his power. But he did as he pleased and magnified himself. That also, that geographic description also fits with the Medo-Persian Empire because they are coming from the east, from, from where Iran is today, and they are spreading west, north, and south. Then move down to verse 20, which is the in, in the interpretation of this vision. As we go through chapter 8 today, we're going to look at the vision, and then we're going to look at the relevant piece of the interpretation right at that minute so that we can just move through with understanding as we go. Well, in the interpretation of the ram, it says the ram which you saw with the two horns represents the kings of Medea and Persia. So the symbology that we've seen and the research that we've done up through chapter 7 has led us to the correct conclusion. And here it is confirmed right in the interpretation. Then Daniel sees another animal in his vision starting in verse 5. While I was observing, behold, a male goat was coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. The imagery of coming from the west over the surface of the whole earth without touching the ground gives the impression of great speed. Uh, and certainly the, the, the next kingdom that arose in Daniel's visions was the Greek Empire. And, and one of the things that's legendary about the rise of the Greek Empire was the speed with which Alexander the Great conquered the entire world. And the fact that this goat has a single conspicuous horn between his eyes would seem to imply that that would be, that horn is always, always a king or a kingdom, would be Alexander the Great. It's a very unusual goat that has one horn in the middle of his head. Most of them have a horn, one on each side. So this would seem to fit with the rise of the Greek Empire. One question that comes up is whether this is perhaps airplanes, you know, not touching the ground and, you know, how they have that little pointy thing on the on the front of them could that you know could that be what he's what he's seeing and you know I think that's a terrific question actually because there are people that believe that prophecy can only be fulfilled once period the end and then there are other people that think prophecy can be fulfilled more than once I think I come down in probably the third camp in that I believe Prophecy can be fulfilled once and only once. It, it, the prophecy is specific to a time, a place, and a people. But I also agree that you can see in the Bible what's called types that are foreshadowing where the events of an older period foreshadow the events of a, of a future period. For example, Adam has been held up as a type of Christ. A foreshadowing. There's 
lots of examples of this in the Bible. Uh, for example, the relationship between Ruth and Boaz in the book of Ruth has been called a type uh, that of the relationship between Christ and his bride. And this kind of, I absolutely do think that you can and should read scripture with an eye towards both understanding the literal interpretation, but also gleaning the underlying spiritual truths that can impact many other areas of your life. It's, I think, one of the reasons, for example, that God gives us marriage here on earth. Marriage is certainly something literal, physical. We live in it. Uh, it. It has meaning here on earth. But it's also intended as a type or a parable or a way to communicate to us what our relationship with God needs to be like. How we need to pattern um, and live and understand the intimacy and dynamics of our relationship with him. So it makes a whole lot of sense to examine your marriage relationship or any marriage relationship and look for those truths, those ways of interacting, that, that using the marriage as a type to understand a greater spiritual re- reality. But in this case and in this class, we're going to stick straight to the actual physical, literal interpretation of the prophecy as it was intended to be literally fulfilled. So we're in verse 6. Um, he, he, talking about the goat, came up to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing in front of the canal and rushed at him in his mighty wrath. This is can also be explained in history in that when the Greeks came against the, the Persian Empire uh, when Alexander the Great came against the Persian Empire, there was great viciousness involved there, great anger and rage, because when the Persians had come to power, they had tried, they had attacked Greek, Greece. So there was definitely some payback time happening here. Verse 7, I saw him, the goat, come beside the ram, and he was enraged at him, and he struck the ram and shattered his two horns, and the ram had no strength to withstand him. So he hurled him to the ground and trampled on him, and there was none to rescue the ram from his power. So that, you know, obviously that that uh, would imply that the Greek empire utterly took over, destroyed the Persian empire. Verse 8, Then the male goat magnified himself exceedingly, But as soon as he was mighty, the large horn was broken, and in its place there came up four conspicuous horns toward the four winds of heaven. Very much consistent with our understanding of the Greek Empire. Number one, we know that that Alexander the Great, who would be this single conspicuous horn, as soon as he came to power, he got sick and died. He died very young at the age of 33. And that fit, seems to fit with this vision in which as soon as he was mighty, the large horn, horn was broken. And we also know that after a period, some period of like 20 years of, of infighting among these generals that came after Alexander the Great, we know that four ultimately arose, emerged and took control of his empire. And they divided up the empire into geographic segments. All of this would be very consistent with the Greek Empire. And in fact, if you look down to verse 21, where you see the interpretation in the scripture, this is confirmed. It says, the shaggy goat represents the kingdom of Greece, and the large horn that is between his eyes is the first king. The broken horn and the four horns that arose in its place represent four kingdoms which will arise from his nation, although not with his power. This whole series with the ram and the goat serves to link this prophecy or this vision to the vision that he saw, that Daniel saw back in chapter 7, where he saw the four beasts, where it has served to say we're talking about the Gentiles, these Gentile kingdoms and the rise of, of and, and the age of the Gentiles, this is just a continuation. We're, we're seeing now the third vision in a row. He had the vision in chapter 2, the vision in chapter 7, and now the vision in chapter 8 that are all 
talking about the age of the Gentiles and the same four uh, empires. So we should expect when we saw when we saw in the previous visions, we saw that the vision brought in the rise of the Greek Empire, brought in the rise of the Roman Empire, and then skipped completely to the end of the age of that imperialist empire, the very last one, the one that, that Rome started, it, the prophecy skips all the way to the end and starts talking about, remember, the 11th horn that arose and, and how the beast was destroyed, the Ancient of Days comes and sits in judgment. All of that happens at the end. It talks about the three and a half years of tribulation under the 11th king, whom we are now calling the Antichrist, and the second coming of Christ that is imminent at that point. So already we've seen in the previous prophecy the gap in the middle of the thousands of years during which we are living, a complete silence over what's happening during that time period. So if this prophecy follows the pattern of the prophecies and visions before it, we would expect to see information about the rise of the kingdoms, see silence about the period in the the interim and get some more information about what will happen at the end. And it so happens that this vision does fit this pattern exactly. Let's look down at verse 15 in chapter 8, which is where the interpretation starts. So at, at this part of the scripture, Daniel has seen all the vision and then he's asking for an interpretation. So verse 15, when I, Daniel had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, standing before me was one who looked like a man. And I heard the voice of a man between the banks of the Uli, and he called out and said, Gabriel, give this man an understanding of the vision. So just to set the scene, Daniel's sitting or standing on one side of the canal, and across the canal, he uh, presumably it appears to be across the canal, He sees someone that looks like a man. Then he hears a third voice coming from in between the banks, like kind of hovering over the water, that says, Gabriel, tell Daniel what's going on. From this, we surmise that Daniel, in his vision, is seeing on the opposite bank of the canal the angel Gabriel, who has been sent to tell him the meaning of this vision. This is... Daniel is the only place in the Old Testament where angels are named. We actually see um, Gabriel named again in the in the New Testament, but in the Old Testament, Daniel is the only place where where they're named, and this is the first place. So, in, in verse 17, so he came near to where I was standing, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, "Son of man, understand that the vision pertains." To the time of the end. So this is the first hint that you've got as, as to what's important about this vision. The interpreter, Gabriel, says, Daniel, what you need to pay attention to is that this pertains, this vision that you're seeing pertains to the time of the end. Now, while he was talking with me, I sank into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, and he touched me and made me stand upright. And he said, Behold, I'm going to let you know what will occur at the final period of the indignation, for it pertains to the appointed time of the end. Here you've got second time, twice in two sentences. This angel has said that this vision pertains to the appointed time of the end. And he's added that word appointed, which is significant because when Jesus talks about the second coming, about his second coming, he says, No one knows when that's going to be except the Father. The Father knows when that time is appointed. What is the appointed time? So here again, we have confirmation that this vision is about the end time. And the word appointed gives us just more of a feeling that this has to do with the period around the second coming of Christ. He also throws in another interesting phrase, and he says that this will occur at the final period of indignation. So this is another word for, or phrase, the period of indignation, another phrase for the great tribulation that is prophesied in a 
ton of places in the Old Testament. Um, and, and here again, it's, it's saying, pay attention because this is what we're going to try, we're trying to communicate. The, one of the places in the Old Testament that talks about the Great Tribulation is in Isaiah chapter 24, verses 3 through 6. A very brief little passage, but I want to read it to you because it gives you a sense of how great this tribulation is. It's not just a bad time. Listen to what Isaiah says. The earth will be completely laid waste and completely despoiled, for the Lord has spoken this word. The earth mourns and withers. The world fades and withers. The exalted of the people of the earth fade away. The earth is also polluted by its inhabitants, for they transgressed laws, violated statutes, and broke the everlasting covenant. Therefore, a curse devours the earth, and those who live in it are held guilty. Therefore, the inhabitants of the earth are burned, and few men are left. It's a very dire picture, and it indicates that there is going to be just disastrous calamity come upon the earth, and, and it is a punishment. It, it is a tribulation that is intended to punish and to purify, and that a few men do live through this, but we will see wholesale death and destruction when the great tribulation comes. In fact, some of the prophecies that you see about the great tribulation use words that that make it sound like, you know, all of mankind is going to be wiped out. But then when you read more about the context even of those prophecies, you see that, you know, not everybody's going to be wiped out because pe- things keep happening to people in the in the prophecy. So, you see that essentially large numbers of folks will be wiped out but, but there will be some few men who do survive so we'll look at you know the great tribulation in more detail as we go through revelation but this just gives you an idea of the magnitude of the suffering that we're talking about and that's important because it has to do with that 11th king with the antichrist And this brings us to the central figure in the vision in chapter 8, which is the king that is described that will arise out of the Greek empire. Uh, When we go on and read the rest of the vision, we're going to see the rising of a king out out of the Greek empire. And this figure is, this particular king is a source of controversy because there are people who believe that this king is the Antichrist. He's, you know, the same one as was described in, in chapter 7. And, and that's what I believe. That's, that's how I interpret, it, interpret this. But uh, there's a great body of scholars that, that I respect very much who believe that he is a different king entirely, that the king in chapter 8 is not the Antichrist. And in fact, uh, they believe that he is a king called Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Greek king who, you know, seems to fit pretty well with this prophecy. And and the scholars who think this are sufficiently well respected that they're the guys that get to write the notes to the NIV study Bible. If you read the footnotes to the NIV study Bible, they say that Antiochus Epiphanes is is the king that fulfilled this prophecy. I disagree with them, and I want to, but I want to give you enough information that you can make this evaluation for yourself. Um, I think there's sufficient scholarly weight for, for me to present both sides of this issue to you. In order to do that, you're going to need to know a little bit about Antiochus Epiphanes. He, he was a Greek king, and chronic, chronologically, the rise of the Greek empire occurs in between the Old Testament and the New Testament, in between that period of time. The Old Testament ends after a remnant of Jews are allowed by the Persian rulers to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the city walls and the temple. The the last book of the Bible um, chronologically is Malachi. It also happens to be the last book of the Bible, but that's just an accident of of organization. The Bible, the Old Testament is not organized chronologically, despite what you, you might be thinking. It's really not. But Malachi was written, best we can tell, around 400 B.C. And it's the last prophecy chronologically in the Old Testament. And it occurred essentially at the end or during the Persian Empire. Uh, 
So the New Testament doesn't start until when? Exactly. The birth of Christ is the first story. You got it on the first try. It's the birth of Christ. So between the rebuilding of Jerusalem in the Old Testament and the birth of Christ in the New Testament, the prophets are silent. There is no scriptural record of biblical prophecy. You know, that isn't to say prophets, prophets did not exist and, you know, operate within their own context in a very localized way, but there is certainly no Isaiah, Jeremiah, Joel, Malachi, Amos, none of the, none of the pro- prophets who are bringing new information to the Israelites as a whole, as a nation. The Greek Empire fits inside of this intertestamental period, the period between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Therefore, we cannot look to Scripture to see what was going on in the Greek Empire. You can look in the Bible, you're not going to see it, except for you know a prophecy of Daniel. You're not going to see much about the Greek Empire in there. So you have to look outside of the Bible to other historical writings. We've already looked at um, sources like Josephus and Herodotus, some of the the historians that wrote about this period of time. But you can also look at a set of books called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha are 15 books that were written and um, incorporated into, in some cases, scripture and in some cases uh, just as historical writings. And let me be clear about that. What happened was you had 14 of these books written um, prior to the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament. The Septuagint was the Greeks' translation of the Old Testament, which occurred during the Greek Empire. As you can see, part of what Greeks brought to the earth was a common language, um, this, this common Greek, Koine Greek. And they, during this period, commissioned the Old Testament to be translated into their common language. And that translation is called the Septuagint, and it's very valuable to um, scholars today and is one of the sources, in addition to the Hebrew version of the Old Testament. It's those two sources combine to help scholars translate and create the English versions of the Bible that we have today. So anyway, 14 of the books of the Apocrypha were included in the Septuagint version. They were never in the Hebrew version, but they were included in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of the Bible. The 15th book hadn't been written yet, so it couldn't be included. It was written, it was written somewhat later. The Catholics have always, have always included 12 of these books in their scripture. So if you pick up a Bible that purports to be a Catholic Bible, you will find um, 12 of the books of the Bible in, um, in the Catholic Bible and as the Apocrypha. The Protestants have never included any of these books in, in their scripture. So many, uh, many of us are not familiar with any of these books. Well, a couple of the books, especially 1st and 2nd Mac- Maccabees, are very helpful in understanding what occurred to the Jews during the intertestamental period. During the, and we're going to look at some, some pieces of Maccabees as we go through here today. But essentially what happened during the early days of the Greek Empire, following the death of Alexander the Great, the Great, there was a general named Antigonus who was very, very powerful. And he had both Asia Minor and Palestine uh, among, among other territories. And, but if you look at your timeline and you look at those four generals who ultimately received the Greek Empire, Antigonus is not one of them. And that's because he was so powerful, the other generals ganged up together, battled him, and killed him. Otherwise, he could have been the next Alexander the Great. So, you know, they could see that he was a threat. Um, and to protect their self-interest, they banded together, they killed Antigonus, and they split up all his land. And the Ptolemies of Egypt got Palestine, and Asia Minor was given to Seleucus. Now, Palestine has always been, always will be, Palestine is the term I'm going to 
used to refer to Israel, Judea, that's where Jerusalem is, it's that whole area, has always been extremely valuable as a trade route, economically, as a way to get from the north to the south, from the east to the west. It's, it's just a critical piece of, of real estate, as we well know, even today. So the fact that the Ptolemies got Palestine made Seleucus mad and the Ptolemies of Egypt and Seleucus of Asia Minor and their descendants fought over Palestine for hundreds of years. I mean, they fought and fought and fought over this. And it um, there were periods of time when they made peace and, you know, somebody would marry somebody else and there would be peace for a little while and then they'd get to fighting over it again. Well, anyway, as, as we go into this, Palestine is in the hands of Seleucus. Well, after Seleucus dies, his kingdom is passed to his son, Antiochus I, and so on and so on. There's various kings in there. And ultimately, you get to Antiochus III. Well, Antiochus III finally wrestled Palestine from the Ptolemies of Egypt. This happened in 198 B.C. And this was not a good thing for the Jews because while they were under the rule of Egypt, of the Egyptians, they had been relatively at peace. They had been left alone and pretty much allowed to continue with their customs. So they, they just simply weren't being bothered a lot by the Egyptians. But when Antiochus III took Palestine, he appointed a military governor to rule Judea and he started imposing taxes and all of a sudden the Jews are beginning to feel the pressure of essentially being occupied or under the rule of another king. And there was, you know, the temple was still considered uh, sacred or at least held in honor. And there's even some evidence that the government may have even subsidized some of the, the, the temple expenses during this period. But things went from bad to worse. So what happened was the Romans battled Antiochus III and defeated him. And although he was allowed to continue to rule, Rome forced him to pay huge taxes called tributes to them. And to ensure that he was going to pay them, they took his son, Antiochus IV, hostage and held him as a hostage in Rome for 14 years. Well, Antiochus III is killed in 187 BC, and one of his sons, who was named Seleucus IV, became king in his place. But this didn't last very long, because eight years later, Antiochus IV, the one that was held hostage in Rome, is released. He comes home and assassinates his brother and takes his throne for himself. And Antiochus IV is a very bad guy, very bad, one of the cruelest tyrants of all time. He took a throne name, which was customary for these kings to take throne names, just kind of like athletes take nicknames nowadays. Well, these kings took throne names. Well, Antiochus, just to give you an idea, Antiochus IV picked for himself the throne name Epiphanes, which means God manifest or God in person. And, in fact, he even stamped the Greek word for God, which is theos. He stamped theos on his coins of the realm. He really thought very highly of himself. Well, doing this earned him some enemies, and and to some extent people laughed at him. And, 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 in fact, he got a nickname, Epimenes. People said, yeah, he calls himself Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes, but we think he's Epimenes which is a Greek word for mad. And he certainly acted like he was mad. Early in his reign, Antiochus Epiphanes deposed Onias, who was the high priest of the temple. And the the high priest was the top leading political position, the ruler, both religiously and civically for the Jews. So early on, Antiochus Epiphanes tosses Onias and installs Onias's brother, Jason. The reason he did that was because Jason promised that not only would he pay tributes to Antiochus Epiphanes, he'd pay him money, but he also would help Hellenize Jerusalem, uh, turn it into Greek. So he was, he was quite a, a betrayer of, of the Jews. Well, 
It didn't last long because Antiochus Epiphanes came up with another guy named Menelaus who agreed to pay him even larger tributes in exchange for being made high priest of, of the temple. So Antiochus Epiphanes, he's just after the money. So he puts Menelaus in, boots Jason out. Well, Jason is really mad about this, as you can imagine. He raises up an army, but there's nothing really he can do because Antiochus Epiphanes is stronger than he is, and there's no way Jason can defeat him. So Jason, it looks like Jason's out of luck, but he just bides his time until Antiochus, he hears that Antiochus Epiphanes dies. And when that happens, Jason takes his um, army, he besieges Jerusalem and takes it back. Problem is, Jason had some bad intelligence and Antiochus Epiphanes was not dead after all. And boy was he mad at Jason. So Antiochus Epiphanes comes roaring back into Jerusalem with a with an army, attacks it savagely, kills thousands of its inhabitants, robs the temple, and leaves a puppet governor named Philip in charge. Antiochus Epiphanes then goes on to Egypt, where he takes the king of Egypt prisoner and proclaims himself to be king of Egypt. This occurred in uh, 168 B.C. Well, that came to the attention of the Romans. You know, when he started, it, they didn't really care too much that he was beating up on the Jews because he, that was part of his territory anyway. He could really do with them as he wished. But when he came and took over Egypt, the Ptolemies of Egypt, now he's crossing out of the Seleucid territory and into the Ptolemy territory. And, and Rome says, uh-uh, not going to do that. Give it back. So Ro- the Roman consul orders Antiochus Epiphanes to withdraw from Egypt and return Egypt to the Ptolemies. And Antiochus Epiphanes has no choice but to do this because Rome is definitely more powerful than he is. So he is publicly humiliated by this. He's coming from Egypt. He has to go north to Antioch, where his capital is, which is on the northeast corner of, of the Mediterranean. And what does he have to pass through in order to get there? Palestine. So Antiochus is in a foul mood. He's been publicly humiliated, and he's marching northwards. And he comes past Jerusalem, and he says, You know, by the way, I am tired of messing with these Jews, and I am going to force them to be Hellenized. Enough of this. I'm going to do whatever it takes to make them adopt Greek civilization. So he appoints a general named Apollonius to do this for him. And Apollonius takes an army of 20,000 troops and he marches to Jerusalem and enters Jerusalem on a Sabbath. The Jews choose not to fight on that Sabbath. Because it was a holy day. And as a result, most of the males in the city are slaughtered and the women and children are taken hostage. A few few men escape the city and certainly there are Jews that live in the small towns around the city of Jerusalem. But Jerusalem has been taken and there has been a huge slaughter within the, within the city. Then Antiochus Epiphanes issues what is a a now famous edict that throughout his kingdom all people should be one in religion, law, and custom. So now I want to read to you an excerpt from 2 Maccabees chapter 6 verse 2 through 11 that talks about this period of time. Not long after this, the king sent an Athenian senator to compel the Jews to forsake the laws of their ancestors and no longer live by the laws of God. Also, to pollute the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of Olympian Zeus and to call the one in Gerizim the temple of Zeus, the friend of strangers, as did the people who lived in that place. Harsh and utterly grievous was the onslaught of evil, for the temple was filled with debauchery and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with prostitutes and had intercourse with women within the sacred precincts and besides brought in things for sacrifice that were unfit. In, in fact, there, is a story, there are stories that Antiochus Epiphanes had pigs slaughtered on the altar. The altar was covered with abominable offerings that were forbidden by the laws. 
People could neither keep the Sabbath nor observe the festivals of their ancestors, nor so much as confess themselves to be Jews. And the penalty here is death. If they do any of these observances or even claim to be Jews, admit that they're Jews, they are killed. On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, monthly, get this, he has to have his birthday every month. On the monthly celebration of the king's birthday, the Jews were taken under bitter constraint to partake of the sacrifices. And when a festival of Dionysus was celebrated, they were compelled to wear wreaths of ivy and to walk in the procession in honor of Dionysus. This is the drunken orgy god. You know, this is this is horrible. At the suggestion of the people of Ptolemaeus, a decree was issued to the neighboring Greek cities that they should adopt the same policy toward the Jews and make them partake of sacrifices and should kill those who did not choose to change over to the Greek customs. So here you see the edict being expanded beyond Jerusalem to all the towns around. One could see, therefore, the misery that had come upon them. For example, two women were brought in for having circumcised their children. They publicly paraded them around the city with their babies hanging at their breasts. These are their dead babies. They have killed the children um, as punishment for the women circumcising their, their children. They publicly paraded them around the city with their babies hanging at their breasts and then hurled them down headlong from the wall. Others who had assembled in the caves nearby in order to observe the seventh day secretly were betrayed to Philip who was that puppet governor, and were all burned together because their piety kept them from defending themselves in view of their regard for that most holy day, the Sabbath. Well, in 167 B.C., there is a, a priest named Mattathias in a town of the name of Modain near Jerusalem. It's in Palestine. And the king's officer has come to Modain and has told Mattathias that he must sacrifice to the great gods on the altar of the Lord. And Mattathias just refuses. He refuses to do it. Well, that is a death sentence. And a Jew, another Jew, not Mattathias, jumps forward and starts to do the sacrifice. Because, I mean, I'm sure he he sees that the whole village is going to be slaughtered because Mattathias is refusing to obey the king's order. Well, Mattathias is angered and in righteous indignation at both this Jew who is performing a sacrilege and at the king's officer. He kills both of them. Then he and his five sons flee into the mountains and begin to organize a resistance movement. From that time forward, then, there's a period of guerrilla warfare that's led by Mattathias and his sons. The most notable of his sons being Judas Maccabeus. Maccabeus is a word meaning the hammer, um, or it could also stand for the first letters of a phrase, Mikamoka uh, Baalim Yahweh, M-K-B-Y, Maccabee, that means who is like unto thee among the mighty, O Yahweh. And in any case, he is a great warrior, leads this, this guerrilla warfare very successfully. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes definitely knew about the Jewish revolt, but he personally could not come to put it down because he's dealing, he's off dealing with even more serious revolts elsewhere in his kingdom. So in his absence from his own, you know, seat of government in Antioch, he had left his son, who was very young, as ruler, well, you can't leave a child ruling. So he had left a, a regent named Lysias to rule in Antioch. And he told Lysias, Antiochus, Antiochus Epiphanes told Lysias, you go down there and depopulate Judah, Judea. Just kill them all. You know, make whoever you want slaves and lay it completely to waste. Just wipe that place out. I'm tired of messing with it. So Lysias sends a a large army under a general named Gorgias, uh, and I'm not sure I'm saying that right, but but maybe it means George, but it's it's a word that looks like George, but it looks like it's pronounced Gorgias. At any rate, this general brings an army, and Judas Maccabeus and the Jews with him utterly rout him. So Lysias comes himself with an even larger army, and Judas Maccabeus and the Jews with him rout him. And this is all told about in 
the books of Maccabees because it's all done by the hand of God. It's just a wonderful story to read. Now, the point here is that Antiochus Epiphanes was powerless to restrain Judas Maccabeus. And so the Jews win, essentially, this guerrilla warfare. And they rededicate, purify and rededicate the temple to the Lord with great joy, rejoicing. In 165 B.C., exactly three years to the day from the day it had been desecrated, by pagan worship. And, and let's read just a little two-verse description of this period of time in 2 Maccabees chapter 10, verses 6 through 8. They celebrated it for eight days with rejoicing in the manner of the festival of booths, remembering how not long before, during the festival of booths, they had been wandering in the mountains and caves like wild animals. Therefore, carrying ivy-wreathed wands and beautiful branches and also fronds of palm, They offered hymns of thanksgiving to him who had given success to the purifying of his own holy place. They decreed by public edict, ratified by vote, that the whole nation of the Jews should observe these days every year. And this Feast of Eight Days is celebrated every year, and we know it today as Hanukkah. This is where Hanukkah came from. Well, Antiochus Epiphanes died of an illness uh, about two years later, and Lysias officially grants the Jews religious freedom. And within 20 years, the Jews have gained complete independence and have actually even made their own peace treaty with Rome, saying, you know, if Rome, if you get in trouble, we'll send soldiers to help you out. If we get in trouble, you send soldiers to help us out. Well, that was fine as far as it went, but the the high priest, that position of government that governed the Jews, became more and more worldly and less and less godly and ultimately became what I would say is purely political. It was it was fought over, kind of bought and sold kind of a thing. And ultimately, the self-rule of the Jews devolved into civil war between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Well, in 63 B.C., The Pharisees appealed to Rome saying, come help us fight the Sadducees. The Sadducees appealed to Rome saying, come help us fight the Pharisees. Well, Rome was perfectly glad to oblige. They send General Pompey. He takes them both. He strips much of the territory of Judea from the, uh, the Jews, establishes a Roman garrison at Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was still under Roman rule at the birth of Christ and the beginning of the New Testament. So this is, um, I guess, a good place to stop because now you have the background on Antiochus Epiphanes that you need to be able to go back this week and reread chapter 8 and begin to think to yourself, is the king that's described in chapter 8, is that prophecy fulfilled already in Antiochus Epiphanes or is that a prophecy fulfilled? of the Antichrist to come. We'll pick up here next week.